Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. I remember sitting down with Madison. It was just a random evening of hanging out together. We got into a conversation about death. I told her that I never wanted to be put in a home and I never wanted to smell like pee. She said, Ma, I will look after you until you die and I would never let you smell like piss. And then she cracked up laughing in her hoarse, crackly voice. I told her I wanted to be cremated. She said, Me too. Jennifer Holloman is reading from a book. She's writing about her daughter, Madison Fraser. She's wearing a locket with Madison's fingerprint in it. Across the room, pictures of a smiling Madison are hanging on the wall. To her right, there's an urn with Madison's ashes. The working title of Jennifer's book is Forever 21. That's how old Madison was when she died. I'm Macy Rowe. This is The Doc Project. Today's story... It's not about Madison's death. It's about the life Jennifer believes she was trapped in when it happened. Since her daughter's death, Jennifer has been working backwards, trying to piece it together. And she thinks she's figured it out. Alex Cook is a reporter with CBC Nova Scotia, and she knew Madison. She's going to take it from here. A quick warning, today's episode has some disturbing content. Madison was born in Kentville, Nova Scotia. She lived in the Annapolis Valley before moving to the Yarmouth area when she was 10. It's a town of about 6,500 people on the southwestern tip of Nova Scotia. That's where I grew up and where I met Madison. In high school, Madison was the kind of girl that other girls envied. She was beautiful, and she was popular. She was always surrounded by friends and people who wanted to be her friend. She and I ran with different crowds. Now, as I learn more about her, I wish I had gotten to know her better. Jennifer said it was Madison's personality that drew people to her. Madison was crazy. Madison was just crazy, and Madison was a lot of fun. She had um, a ridiculous sense of humor. She was very kind. When you were her friend, you were her friend for life. Looking through my old grade 12 yearbook, Madison showed up on a couple of pages. In the blurb next to her graduation picture, she said her years in high school were the best of her life. She thanked a couple of her teachers and her friends. She's wearing a graduation gown in the picture, but it was taken toward the beginning of the school year. A lot changed during that year. She didn't end up graduating. It's strange looking back at that picture. It looks exactly how I remember her looking. Happy, healthy. Looking at that picture, you'd never know what was about to happen. That's us when we were younger, and that's... (laughs) 
<laughs> elementary again, and oh we all you can see the the true sass there. This is Bianca Ramasar. She's been friends with Madison since they were about eleven years old. That was us, always making trouble, and like she was always had plan of her own. That was her. Yeah. Mischievous, but with a heart of gold. Yeah, definitely. She wasn't doing anything bad. She was just socializing and making everybody laugh. That's for sure. Actually, the thing Madison was most known for, it's kind of unexpected. She was a champion boxer. We're taking a look at 14-year-old Madison Fraser of Yarmouth, who after just one year of experience in boxing is already a Canadian amateur national champion. Madison began training when she was 13. In the next couple of years, she would become a two-time Canadian boxing champion. Jennifer said boxing was a good outlet for Madison. She loved it. She was she really lacked um, finesse in the ring, but she could hit like a man. It was ridiculous, the strength that she had. There's a breakfast television interview that's now over a decade old. Madison said she someday wanted to go pro. But the matches themselves weren't even what she liked most about boxing. My favorite part of the whole boxing thing is probably at the end when you get to, when the fight is finished and you get to like hug the people and <laughs> make some friends. After you guys been pounding on each other, yeah, <laughs> hug and make friends. Well, that's the way it certainly should be. But then, in high school, things started to change. At the time, I wasn't concerned, but, I mean, she stopped boxing as much. She stopped hanging out with her family as much as she liked to. And she had this one particular boyfriend, and I, I wouldn't say that he was what started everything, but this boyfriend was older and lived a different lifestyle. And I think now going back, not saying that that's what started it all, but that would have been one warning sign. I feel like if she had dated maybe somebody else, maybe things would have ended up differently. I'm not sure. Their relationship didn't last long, but it coincided with a larger change. I think when she turned 16, 17, um, she started to get a little more rebellious. That's kind of when it started to take a little bit of a, of a sharp turn in the wrong direction, I feel. Madison loved kids and taking care of people. Jennifer said Madison aspired to be a nurse. And when she was 15, she started babysitting the kid of an older female friend. But Jennifer says Madison did whatever she wanted at this girl's house. She could drink and smoke weed with impunity. She could skip school. She started to stay at this girl's house for days at a time. She always wanted to stay there because she knew she could do what she wanted when she wanted and didn't really have anyone to answer to. As long as she was babysitting when she was needed, everything else was a-okay. But she was missing a lot of school. Um, She basically ended up dropping out and didn't finish high school, which was really upsetting. In grade 12, Madison got pregnant and had a baby that summer. There were a few teen moms at my high school, so that wasn't really a big deal. It was what happened next. When Madison was 19, she packed up her life and her one-year-old daughter and moved to Alberta with the older friend and the friend's boyfriend. Jennifer wasn't thrilled, but ultimately, she couldn't stop her. Shortly after Madison moved to Alberta, one of her friends sent Jennifer a photo. Somebody found Madison's ads on Backpage and 
back page is sort of like what at the time was like a Craigslist. You could post for sale, whatever you want, you know, looking for pets, this, that, the other thing. But there was also a section for escorts. The friend sent Jennifer a picture of Madison's ad. Jennifer felt angry and helpless. She begged her to come home, but Madison refused. At the time, Jennifer didn't fully understand what was happening. She only figured it out after Madison's death. On July 8, 2015, Jennifer got a call from her other daughter. Madison had died in a car crash early that morning. The driver had been drinking. She said that um, an RCMP officer came to the door and said that Madison was in a car accident out west and that she never made it. And I didn't know what to say. I, I, I don't really know what happened after that. The weeks that followed were a blur of phone calls, funeral arrangements, and condolences. But something was burning in Jennifer's mind. She needed to know more. Looking back and unraveling the story, Jennifer believes her daughter was a victim of human trafficking. That term, human trafficking. What comes to mind might be stolen people in the back of trucks. Trapped. Hidden. But that's not necessarily the case. Human trafficking can be subtle. And it can be in the open. It can look like a move across the country, but it's not. To clarify here, not all prostitution is technically considered trafficking. There are two major differences. First, trafficking must involve a third-party beneficiary. So someone aside from the sex worker and the john, the person paying for sex, must be involved. This is usually a pimp, and that pimp can be anyone, a partner, friend, or family member, and the pimp stands to make money. The second element, force, coercion, or fraud. Tactics and manipulations that keep hold on the prostitute. This doesn't usually look like a physical restraint, being locked in a room or shackled. It's way more complicated than that. And that's the part that Jennifer didn't recognize. Jennifer didn't see it because she didn't know the manipulation tactics, the isolation, and the violence that human traffickers use to keep their victims obedient and profitable. And she didn't know how big of a problem human trafficking is in Canada. As part of her healing, Jennifer is on a mission to understand what happened to Madison. I tell everyone it's like a big piece, a big puzzle, and I only have certain pieces that I can put together, but it's never finished, and I don't know that I'll ever finish it, but as long as I can work at it and find more answers to the questions that I have for myself, you know, I'll figure, I'll figure more of it out as time goes on. We'll get back to Madison's story, but for you to understand what happened to her, I want you to meet someone. I'm Pamela Rubin, and I've been looking at issues with respect to sexualized violence for over 20 years, first as a lawyer who evaluated justice system responses to sexualized violence, and over the last 10 years as a trauma counselor working with survivors. Jennifer and Pamela have met, and Pamela is familiar with Madison's story. 
In her 20-plus years of seeing the effects of sex work, Pamela says that the vast majority of prostitution in Canada depends on trafficking. A lot of what the research says is that prostitution as a whole, as it exists in North America, is very dependent on trafficking. Their first contact was often as a result of trafficking. According to Statistics Canada, it's hard to get the complete picture of this problem because human trafficking is highly underreported. According to police-reported numbers, the vast majority of human trafficking victims are young women and girls. Females under the age of 25 represent 70% of all police-reported human trafficking victims, and a large percentage of those are underage. The youngest people possible are targeted often. Uh, by traffickers, and that's because they're easier to control, and it's also because that's what Johns want. So that's who it's really profitable for pimps and traffickers to sell. It's difficult to prosecute pimps because how the justice system currently works, the burden lies on the victims to A, get out of that situation, B, come forward, and C, go through an extremely re-traumatizing court process. And there's often significant barriers preventing them from getting out and coming forward in the first place. They could be living under a constant threat of violence. They could fear for their lives and the lives of their friends and family. They could have been manipulated and isolated by their traffickers for so long that they don't think it's an option anymore. Their pimps might be paying their rent, their phone bill. Their pimps might be their boyfriends. Pamela said there are other ways to find these criminals that don't put the onus on the victims. She thinks they need to be investigated the way other organized crime is investigated, the way the illegal trade of drugs and weapons are investigated, gathering a big pile of evidence based on surveillance, where the responsibility of gathering evidence lies predominantly and proactively on law enforcement and not on the victim. Uh, we need uh, the resources and the willingness to do that and stop relying on victim witnesses uh, to win these cases for the justice system. AC here. Coming up, Jennifer's puzzle starts coming together. So, I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives. Available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Madison. Why does Jennifer think Madison was trafficked? The biggest clue, the intimidation tactics, the violence and control that we were just talking about, we have very good reason to trust that Madison was a victim of that. In early 2013, a few months after Madison moved to Alberta, someone sent Jennifer another picture. This one was of a girl who, at first, Jennifer didn't recognize. 
The girl had been badly beaten. Her eyes were black and blue and swollen shut. Her lips were swollen. Her whole face was swollen. It took a few moments before Jennifer even realized that she was looking at a picture of her daughter. It broke my heart. It broke my heart. It broke my heart that I couldn't protect her, that I wasn't protecting her, that I wasn't being, I felt, the mom that I should have been. When Jennifer asked Madison about it, Madison said she was wearing her hair under a baseball cap, and a group of men jumped her at a party thinking that she was someone else, a man they were looking for. Jennifer didn't buy it. By that point, Madison had gotten very good at downplaying the seriousness of what was happening to her. But the more Jennifer tried to help Madison, the more her daughter would push her away. And I don't think I really knew the severity of what she was involved in, and I had no idea how to handle it. Like, no idea. While Madison was still alive, Jennifer did everything she could to try to make her come home. She begged and pleaded. She got sad angry. She contacted the police when Madison dropped contact for weeks at a time. And she was bewildered. At the time, she thought this was all by choice, that it must have been, or else why would Madison stay? And I couldn't reprimand her, I couldn't scold her, you know, I couldn't shut her out because I'd lose touch with not only her, but my granddaughter, and Callie was too little. I I felt like I owed her that much. Nine months after Madison moved to Alberta, she messaged Jennifer and asked her to come get her young daughter. Her words were, If you don't come get Callie, someone else will. Jennifer caught the first plane she could. I feel like when I went on the plane and I flew out there to pick up Callie, I feel like I should have. I was face to face with two of these individuals. I should have said exactly what I thought. I should have said, you know, I should have said stuff to her. I should have told her, you know, this isn't where you need to to be. I should have, I should have, I don't know. I see those shows on TV. I wish I would have put her in a home somewhere to get rehabilitated. I wish I could have just taken her away and manhandled her and locked her up until she was detoxed and realized how special she actually was and how important she was to me because I feel like, I feel like she died not knowing that. And that really, really sucks. This is part of why Jennifer agreed to share her story. Because she doesn't want this to happen to anyone else. She wants them to see and recognize what's happening. People will say it's not your fault. You can't feel guilty about this. You can't feel that, you know, this happened because of something you never did as a parent. But you know what? That, that will never go away. When Madison died, all of her belongings were in Alberta. Her apartment was cleaned out very shortly after her death. Jennifer doesn't know who cleaned it out or who has Madison's stuff. Jennifer did get a small box of her daughter's belongings, though. One of Madison's notebooks was inside. I found this in her notebook and it broke my heart when I read it. 
Everyone I truly love is away from me. My mother, sister, daughter, father, nanny, grammy, everyone. I feel like I cause less pain when I'm away. So how do I learn to love myself? This question puts me at awe because I feel like I've been trying to learn how to love my whole life. Something is missing. I can't figure out what it is. Jennifer doesn't know when it was written, but the notebook wasn't very well used, so she suspects it was shortly before Madison's death. The box of Madison's belongings also contained her phone and its charger. In her texts, Jennifer found message upon message from potential clients, men asking her what her rates were, what she would or wouldn't do, acronyms and terms that Jennifer had never heard of. The worst thing on Madison's phone was a voice memo she had sent to a friend on Facebook. In it, she described a time when a man who Jennifer believes was one of Madison's pimps beat her up with a group of other men. This is part of that recording. They came and picked me up and took me out to a range row and like beat the shit out of me, girl. I was in the GP hospital for like, for like four days. And then they like burnt me with cigarettes and let my hair on fire and then um, burnt me with the lighter. They fucking like kicked the shit out of me really bad. I was fucked up. This was a different time than the photo of Madison covered in bruises which means this happened to Madison more than once. Madison was a champion boxer, and this happened to her more than once. Before Madison died, it seemed to Jennifer like she was trying to get out of that life. Inexplicably, and out of nowhere, Madison came back to Nova Scotia for a brief time in the spring of 2014. She was working at a home for people with Alzheimer's and dementia, She went back to school. She got her GED. But she seemed different from the girl who left for Alberta two years before. She was a lot more hard, I found. Um, She wasn't that soft, spunky, real happy Madison. You could tell on the inside. I think she was drinking a lot. I think she was using drugs a lot just to try to cope. Anything that I tried to do to help her, that I thought was helping her, she was pushing me away. And it was, it was just a very hard time for everybody involved. Bianca saw Madison while she was in town, too. She kind of seemed very, like, just blank. And she didn't really have much emotion. She kind of just seemed like the person I knew wasn't there. Madison abruptly left Nova Scotia shortly after. That visit was the last time Jennifer saw her. And it just seemed like she was making um, some really good progress. And then the next thing I knew, she was gone again. And I think this time, I think she went by bus. But I don't know why. I don't know what happened. Along with the voice memo describing the attack, there were a few things that Jennifer found on Madison's phone that finally shed some light on the night she died. Jennifer found a number of text messages Madison sent that night, which indicated the man who was driving the car was a John. One set of messages was to someone saved in her phone under the name Fresh. Madison texted him that night, saying that she didn't like this particular client. Fresh asked her why. Madison goes, he never wants to take me home, or he never wants to let me go. Then there were messages to the client himself. 
she must have been in a bar when he picked her up. She said, I'll, I'm just finishing my drink. I'll be right down. And then that was the last that was messages that were on her phone. And then that's when she had her accident. That message was sent at around 11 o'clock at night on July the 7th. The car crash happened at around 2 o'clock the next morning. While Madison died at the scene, the man driving the car ended up in a coma and died from his injuries a month later in the hospital, taking with him the answers that Jennifer had been so desperately seeking. She's passed along everything she's learned to police in Nova Scotia and Alberta. Alberta RCMP carried out two year-long investigations, but nobody has ever been arrested for trafficking or assaulting her daughter. Jennifer says it's because her daughter wasn't there to point fingers. I reached out to the Alberta RCMP to ask for an interview with an investigator who worked on Madison's case. They said they could not accommodate my request at this time. Instead, I got a five-line statement. Corporal Chris Warren said officers launched an investigation into Madison's alleged assault in August 2015, after that voice memo surfaced where she named some of the men who beat her up. She said officers obtained hospital records and two of Madison's cell phones as part of their investigation. He said interviews were conducted, but they didn't get enough evidence to substantiate the assault. The investigation ended in June but it was reopened a year later to follow up on additional statements. Warren said the file is now closed, but it can be reopened if new evidence comes up. Nova Scotia just had its first human trafficking conviction in 2016. There's only been a few more since then. But Statistics Canada says police have reported 63 human trafficking violations between 2009 and 2016. Progress is being made in Canada, but slowly. There's a new human trafficking hotline that victims can call to get connected to services to help them. The federal government is committing $57 million over the next five years. It's part of an overall strategy to combat this problem. But Pamela says there's still lots of work to be done to fight human trafficking. You know, some of it is culture change. Some of it is... Uh, just taking violence against women much more seriously as a whole. I mean, that's still a struggle in Canada. And Madison's story is not only one of trafficking, it's one of uh, all sorts of misogynist violence. I do understand that there are police out there that want to help, and I know they can't because their hands are tied. I know they have, um, you know, they have uh, laws they have to follow. They have protocol they have to follow. I understand that, um, but in this day and age, the education for them should be stepped up with respect to human trafficking, and their hands need to be untied with respect to human trafficking. If they know that these men are pimping out these young girls and who's doing it, the girls aren't going to come forward and say anything unless they think that by doing that they're going to put these people behind bars and that just isn't happening. It's hard to put into words how devastated Jennifer is by the death of her daughter. A girl who, despite everything, she remembers most as a bright young woman and an amazing mother. It makes me sad. Sorry. No, okay. It makes me sad to think about 
her not being here because she was just, she was so happy, like, all the time. Even if she wasn't happy, she exuded happiness. And I think that was probably the best thing about her. She was just, she was just like a ray of sunshine to me all the time. She was just, she was beautiful. Jennifer doesn't have a lot of Madison's belongings left, but what she does have, she cherishes. When Madison got beaten up the first time out west in Edmonton, um, I think one of her friends that went to the hospital and spent the most time with her um, took this blanket to her. And then Madison ended up bringing it home, I think, on the plane. She came home one time to visit, and for whatever the reason, it got left here. And then when I pulled it out of the closet, I was like, wow. Every night I go to bed, it's just habit. I pull the sheets down, I open this up, I sleep with the fuzzy, the softest side against me, and I just curl up in the blanket and yeah. That doc was produced by Alex Cook and edited by me, A.C. Rowe. It was mixed by Julia Poggle. The Canadian Human Trafficking Helpline is a website and phone number where you can get 24-7 confidential help. They are at canadianhumantraffickinghotline.ca. You can also find a link to that website on ours, cbc.ca slash docproject. On our Instagram, we have this photo of Madison in her boxing gear. She's 13 or 14, right? So the gloves are about the size of her head, and she looks so happy. If you can, please take a moment to rate and review us, or better yet, share us with a friend. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Julia Poggle, Allison Cook, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. I'm Macy Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.